Amen. Please turn with me to the book of Mark, Mark chapter 14. I love learning a new skill. I remember specifically when I first learned how to ride a bike, you know, after months of practice, my dad finally took the training wheels off, right, and he pointed me out in direction toward this huge open field, wide open field, and I started to ride. Man, I just, I went. I was going. No training wheels at all. I'm just flying through this open field. And, you know, going faster and faster because I really didn't know how to turn yet. Uh, so I, I kept my balance by pedaling faster. And, you know, like I said, just picture this. a huge, wide open field, except there was one tree. There was one tree right in the middle. And as I started, I was aimed at that tree. And so I was just pedaling faster and faster toward that tree. And I knew I didn't know how to break. I didn't know how to turn. And, and I, you know, I could just see this inevitable approaching doom coming on me. Nothing I could do, do about it. Bam! I just smashed straight into that tree. And I would, I'd love to tell you that I just, I got up off the bike, dusted myself off, you know, and began to ride again, but I didn't actually get back on the bike for two years. <laughs> I mean, I, that crash just really unnerved me. But two years later, I did get back on a bike and that time I got it. And man, I just, I just took off at that point. We had moved to a new town and I would get up before my parents. I would get my bike out of the garage and I would just start to ride, you know, like, 5 a.m. I was up on that bike riding because I was motivated. My parents would look in my room, no kid. They checked the garage. Okay, he's just riding around the neighborhood on his bike. And then I learned how to ride with no hands. So I'd ride through the whole neighborhood, you know, cruising around all these corners, no hands. And then I'd try new things. I'd stand on my seat and I, I just, I loved it. It was awesome. It's a wonderful thing to master a new skill. Unless you crash, right? <laughs> then it's not, it's not so wonderful. And then, the, you know, in my lifetime, there have been some of those skills that I've, I've pressed through the crashes to, to actually master the skill. But then there have been other times when the crash is just too much and I stopped. And I've noticed that sometimes people are like that with prayer. They've tried and maybe tried multiple times, but it just doesn't seem to be rewarding or effective. And so uh, we quit. Now, in my history as a pastor, uh, every time that I ask somebody, you know, how's your prayer life? Uh, I, I never get a positive response. So I say, well, maybe once. Maybe once I had somebody say, yeah, my prayer life's good or, you know, it's growing or whatever. Usually people just kind of look down at their feet and they shuffle a little bit. Oh, it's not, it's not great. It really could be better, whatever. So I've noticed if, if I'm in a conversation and I don't want to talk anymore, I just ask people, how's your prayer life? <laughs> just kidding, not really. I've thought about it though because nobody wants to talk about it because we're not good at it, Right? which is a shame. We feel ashamed and guilty, but why don't we say, well, let's, let's just grow and get better rather than stopping. Remember last week, we were in 2 Timothy and we were talking about the persecuted church. And our application was prayer. Because what does the persecuted church want? They ask us who are not living in heavily persecuted areas to pray for them, pray for the salvation of those who are persecuting them. Pray for their endurance in the face of persecution. Pray that the gospel would be protected so it could continue to go out. Pray that they would be physically guarded and protected. Prayer, that's what they asked for. And so uh, this week as I was thinking about that application, um, just it's been on my mind that I want to grow in prayer and I want to learn how to pray better. I want to be better at this uh, fundamental activity in Christian life. So, you know, that, well, I'm just going to take a pause on 2 Timothy for a week, and we're just going to talk about prayer. And we're just going to talk about prayer. Wonderful thing about prayer is it's not a spiritual gift that some people get and others don't. It's not. It's a relational skill 
that everyone can grow in and everyone can master. So we're going to learn from the greatest prayer ever. We're going we're to think about Jesus. Because he was, he was great at prayer. Remember he had 12 disciples and those 12 disciples followed him all around and they watched him uh, preach and teach and heal and cast out demons and raise the dead. But you may notice as you read through the Gospels that they never asked Jesus to teach them to preach or teach or even teach them how to heal. But they did say Jesus teaches how to pray, which is truly remarkable because they grew up in a praying culture. From the time that they were infants, their parents said prayers over them. They learned prayers around the dinner table. They would go to school and learn prayers. Every feast and festival, there were prayers that were spoken. They would go to the temple and they would hear professional prayers, the priests and Levites. So everywhere that they went, they were surrounded with prayer. But then when they heard Jesus pray, they said, you know, there's something really different about the way that you pray. Jesus, teach us to pray. And so we're going to look at the life of Jesus, specifically at his prayer life. I'm going to give you five characteristics that we can imitate from the life of Jesus in prayer. I want you to begin reading with me in Mark chapter 14 and verse 32. In Mark chapter 14 and verse 32. They came to a place named Gethsemane. Jesus said to his disciples, sit here until I have prayed. And he took with him Peter and James and John, and he began to be very distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. And he went a little beyond them, and he fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will but what you will. When Jesus prayed, uh, first, his prayer life was intensely personal. There was nothing superficial about the way that Jesus prayed. Jesus despised despised long and flowery prayers. There's not a lot of theological jargon that you find in Jesus's prayers. They're just intensely personal. Now, I've noticed in uh, my spiritual life, the people that I admire most in prayer, I I hear them pray or I'm praying with them, and I'm like, man, there's something deeper that you experience in prayer than I do. Rarely have those people gone to seminary. I'm glad I went to seminary. I'm glad for all that I learned. But I've also discovered that a lot of times theological education can actually dampen that personal passion for God. Spoken to seminary student after seminary student who needed years to recover from that experience in their own personal spiritual life. Prayer is intensely personal. It's designed to be intensely personal. When Jesus prayed, he prayed and he said, Abba, Father, right? Daddy, Daddy, I need you. In this moment of desperation where Jesus is about to go through suffering in the cross, he just reaches out to his heavenly Father. And he speaks to him as if uh, he knows him. And we see a similar sentiment if you look in the Psalms of David. He said, oh God, you are my God. I long for you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. You read David's Psalms, which are, are, are prayers. They're, they're poetic prayers. And they are deeply, intensely personal. Because David knows God personally. Jesus knew his heavenly father personally. And really, men and women, that's the essence of the Christian faith. It's personal. That's my question for you this morning is, do you know God, right? Not do you know a lot about God, but you actually know God. Steve's testimony was perfect. 
I mean, he was, he was making the exact point that I, that I want to make in the beginning of this message, and that is, you know, he had been exposed to a lot of facts about God in his home and in church, but he didn't know God. They weren't things that he had appropriated for himself. And that's often my concern in this culture that we live in here in the South is so many of us have been in church and around church and exposed to Christian ideas, but we don't, we don't know God and love God as our own friend and as our own father. I, I interact with person after person after person who doesn't actually have a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And that's, that's my question for you this morning is, do you know him? Or do you know him? See, when we're born into this world, we're actually born outside of relationship with God. And for some of us, we get exposed to a lot of data about God through our years. But at some point, you need to make that personal. You need to reach out to God and say, God, I do understand that I was born separated from you. That's what sin does. I was born outside relationship with you. But you as a heavenly father loving me so deeply gave your one and only begotten son to remove that debt of sin so that I could be in your family. And that's what Christianity is about. Right? It's, it's not about data about God or facts about God. It's about a personal relationship that's initiated by God toward us when he reconciles us and puts us into his family. We receive that gift by faith. And so I want to challenge you and encourage you. If maybe your prayer life feels really sterile because you're not actually in the family yet. You can't cry out, Abba, Father, because you don't know God like that. We can do that this morning. And the moment that you do, God's intention is that relationship would go deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. That's what relationships, good relationships, actually do. They grow in their depth. I want you to turn with me to the uh, Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 11 and verse 9. Luke chapter 11, verse 9, the disciples... uh, They've heard Jesus pray and they say, Jesus, you got to teach us something about prayer. We don't pray like you do. And that's when he gave them what we call the Lord's Prayer. It's actually the, the disciples' prayer, right? He's teaching the disciples how to pray. And one of the things he tells them is, don't repeat this prayer over and over and over again, which is how we actually use the Lord's Prayer. Ironically, right? Just crazy. He said, that's not how you should use it at all, you're missing the point. This is just a template of things to guide you in your conversation with the Father. And then he goes on and he explains more about how to have this intimate, personal conversation with the Father. Verse 9, he says, So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Now suppose one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish, He will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? If he's asked for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now, if you ever wondered if Jesus had a sense of humor, there's all kinds of funny stuff in the Gospels. I mean, you know, he's just kind of poking him in the eye. He goes, by the way, you're all evil fathers, right? (laughs) If you as evil know how to give good gifts, right? You're not going to give your children snakes or scorpions, are you? And, you know, everybody's going, oh, no, we wouldn't, Jesus. Well, let's argue then, can we, from the lesser to the greater. If you, being evil, know how to and long to give good gifts, how much more do I want to do that? You notice when Jesus instructs how to pray, he ties it to the character of God as Father. God is your Father. 
He longs to give you more even than you asked for and better than you asked for. So ask, right? So ask. Can you imagine, you know, your children asking you for something the way that you hear people around you pray? Right? You would never expect your children to ask in that way, right? Oh, oh thou dearest uh, earthly father in thy great benevolence and thy power to provide for me. And since thou hast granted me access to that large refrigerated box in the corner of thy kitchen, wouldst thou bring me greater sustenance for my body so that I can grow strong and be nourished in the name of thy excellent wife and my dearest beloved mother. Amen. Truly, verily, father, yes, Lord, come. I mean, you're like, what? I mean, you can't. That's not normal human conversation. Where'd you learn that? Oh, Sunday school? <laughs> no, no. That's not how we talk to God. That's not how we talk to God. What do I want to hear from my kids? Daddy, please. Oh, that's enough. That just lights my heart up. Daddy, please. When Jesus prayed, he just he said, Daddy, Abba, Father, please. Right? First characteristic of Jesus' prayer. When he prayed, it was personal, deeply personal. Second, when Jesus prayed, he made prayer his highest priority. Turn back a few chapters to Luke chapter 3 and verse 21. Luke 3, verse 21. Now, when all the people were baptized by John the Baptist, Jesus was also baptized, and while he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came out of heaven, you are my beloved son, and you, I am so very well pleased. This is actually the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. He is now at the point to reveal himself as king, and he's going to begin to, to preach and to heal and to offer himself to Israel. This is the very beginning point. What is Jesus doing at the very beginning? Well, first he's identifying himself with the message of John the Baptist, who's been preparing the way for Messiah, saying the Messiah is coming. And Jesus is baptized by him saying, yes, I agree with that message. I am he. And in the middle of that baptism, what is Jesus doing? He's, con- he's having a conversation with his heavenly father and his heavenly father is speaking back to him. He's praying, we're told. He's praying and his father pray, speaks back or prays back and says, this is my son, I just want you to know, this is the one in whom my heart takes delight. This is the one in whom I am well pleased. Jesus actually began his ministry in prayer. Jesus sustained his entire ministry in prayer. If you read the Gospels, Jesus is constantly praying. Mark chapter one. In the early morning while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house and went away to a secluded, secluded place, and there he was praying. There he was praying. You know, actually, I will tell you, this verse actually makes me feel pretty uncomfortable because I'm not a morning person, right? Any morning people in here? Right, a couple, some of you are ashamed to even lift your hand because, because the rest of us don't like you. I mean, you know... <laughs> We envy you, but we don't like you, right? You're the person you, you know, in the morning, man, alarm goes off and you're just cheerful. All right, day, going, let's go, right? And you want to sing a song to the rest of us or quote a verse, right? And your feet hit the floor and we're like, oh, you know, you're evil. Give me coffee, right? Don't talk, right? I want to be you, but I'm not you. Right? And I know my most productive time is actually in the morning, but it's that transition from asleep to awake, just those minutes that are so horrible and they're wonderful once it happens, but I don't like them, you know, cause I'm not, I am not a morning person. 
And I want to be, and I pray and ask to be, God, make me a morning person, but I'm not. So I read a verse like this, and I just say, you know, I guess Jesus is just a morning person. So this was easy for him, right? Mm, I don't know. Let's uh, turn to Luke chapter 6, verse 12. Luke 6, verse 12. It was at this time that Jesus went off to the mountain to pray. And he spent the entire night in prayer to God. Jesus got up really early before the sun came up, and then sometimes he'd stay up the entire night. Jesus wasn't just a morning person or a night person. Jesus was just a person who loved to be with his father. See, actually, I I don't find it quite as difficult to get up really early in the morning when I'm going to go hunt. It's just harder to get up to pray. Because I don't sense my need, and I don't have that same longing. Jesus prayed early in the morning. Jesus prayed uh, all night long. These two Uh, illustrations are Jesus praying in private, which he did a lot. He prayed by himself, but he also prayed uh, with his disciples. Look at Luke chapter 9, verse 18. 918. It says, and it happened that while Jesus was praying alone, the disciples were with him. Now that's grammatically kind of weird, isn't it? While he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. That is, he's praying by himself with his heavenly father, and he invites his disciples to be with him also in that moment. And there were times when Jesus was there with his disciples, and they were each praying on their own. There were times when they were all praying together. Look at chapter 9, verse 28. So some eight days after these sayings, he took along Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different. His clothing became white and gleaming, and they were all together in that moment. And then there were other times when Jesus would pray in front of large crowds. So, you know, privately with a small group of his friends, publicly in front of others. Sometimes he prayed really short prayers. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And then sometimes, as in Luke 6, he prayed for hours because it was a big event. He's about to choose his 12 disciples. And so he spends hour after hour. So it's, it's public, it's private, it's with a few friends, it's with a lot of friends. Uh, It's uh, long prayers, it's short prayers. Jesus' ministry, his entire ministry is sustained through prayer. Look at Luke chapter 22, verse 39. Luke 22, verse 39. It says, Jesus came out and he proceeded as was his custom to the Mount of Olives and the disciples also followed him. Have you ever wondered how it is that Judas would know where to find him? It's because he always went to the same place. He went to a garden to pray. That was his habit. That was his custom throughout his entire life. This is how Jesus sustained his ministry. Now, can you imagine? This is the Son of God, right? God in human flesh, who sensed such a need and had such joy in spending time with his Father that he was continuously in conversation. I say, how much more do we need that? And how much more joy could we experience that we haven't yet known that Jesus experienced in fellowship with his Father? The first thing we see from Jesus is he starts his ministry in prayer. He keeps going, sustains his ministry in prayer. Jesus ended his earthly ministry in prayer. The sayings of Jesus are just short pieces of conversation with his father. Father, forgive them. Into your hands I commit my spirit. What's Jesus doing right now? He's praying. If praying is just conversation with the Father, that means that Father, Son, and Spirit are all having a conversation, and you know what they're talking about? Talking about you. 
They're talking about me. Since God is infinite and unlimited, he can have this conversation about each of his children, his children that he loves, Heavenly Father, speaking to his son. The voice of the Spirit is entering in and they are talking about us. Talking about how to draw us into deeper relationship with them. They're talking about our prayer life and and wanting to, to invite us to love Father, Son, and Spirit more, to enjoy Father, Son, and Spirit more. This is Jesus' entire life, right? His entire life is a life of prayer. And because it was such a high priority, Jesus guarded himself and protected himself in that time with the Father. Turn back to Luke chapter 5, verse 15. When Jesus prayed, he gave his Father undivided attention. Luke chapter 5, verse 15. But the news about him was spreading even farther, and large crowds were gathering to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. In other words, the ministry is going great. Jesus is doing just what he came to do, right? More and more and more people want to hear him preach. They want to learn how to pray from him. They want to be healed by him and have demons cast out from them. Man, Jesus is gathering. You know what happens every time Jesus gathers a bigger crowd? He says, hold on, i got to be with my father for a while. You'll have to wait. And he separates himself. Verse 16. But Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. Jesus said, yeah, I'm trying to draw you to the Father and and I am the King. But to sustain my life, I have to be away. And so he would move into the wilderness, which had huge symbolic significance in both Old Testament and New Testament, right? It's a place of of desolation and suffering, a place in which you, you must have God's sustenance. Right? There's symbolic meaning, but also really literal meaning. There, there's, there's no one out there. And so that's what Jesus would do. He would pull away. Literally, he would, he would pull away. And where he, he moved in Israel at that point in time, 30 minutes walk, 40 minutes walk, an hour walk, he could be completely away from people. No sights, right? no sounds to distract, no lights flashing, no noise. Men and women, I would argue our, our greatest barrier to learning how to have really rich conversation with our Father is we live in just such a noisy culture. I mean, it's just, it is so noisy. You know, what I find interesting is every time I do a wedding or a funeral, the family says, would you please, at the very beginning, ask everyone to silence their cell phones? Would you ask them just to pay attention for just a few minutes to this really important day in the life of our family? Would you just announce, turn off your cell phones, Right? Oh, but wait, I can't. You know, maybe a Pokemon alert's going to come up and i got to get it, right? I mean, sarcasm intended there, right? I'm, I'm a victim of this too. I am. You know, I've discovered this last year, I really started paying attention to it, and I, I feel a little bit out of sorts if I don't have my phone on my body, and I'm not sure where I placed it. I began to get a little bit nervous, right? That's, that's an addiction, right? That's a symptom of an addiction. Like, honey, where's my phone? Could you ring my phone and find my phone? Everybody stop everything you're doing in the house. Go find dad's phone, right? Because all of my life just you know, flows through this narrow digital portal and I've got to have that thing in my hands or I get anxious. Men and women, we just live in a super noisy, busy culture. But I promise you, in Jesus' day, even though they didn't have cell phones, Jesus' life was really busy. None of us have thousands of people following us, wanting to listen to us constantly, wanting to touch us, 
Jesus had to be intentional, just as we have to be intentional to separate ourselves or we won't be able to be undistracted and hear the voice of God. One of my favorite authors is Eugene Peterson. He said this, I can be active in pray, I can work in pray, but I cannot be busy in pray. I cannot be inwardly rushed, distracted, or dispersed. Usually for prayer to happen, there must be a deliberate withdrawal from the noise of the day, a disciplined detachment from the insatiable self. That's challenging. And that's convicting. And one of the things I want to encourage you to do as an application of this sermon is find a wilderness. Find a wilderness. Maybe it is that you get up a little earlier and you walk when no one else is walking in the neighborhood. When your cell phone is not yet ringing. And you can be undistracted, listening to the voice of God, speaking to God. Or maybe it's on your way to work. But you can silence that cell phone or put it away as you should as you're driving and just listen to the voice of God and speak to God. Uh, my wife literally goes into our closet and when she's in there and the closet door is closed, the kids know don't bother her. She's praying. If she's in there, the, the word is open and she's listening to God from the word and she's speaking and she's praying. I mean, and, and she really does pray. If she says she's going to pray for you, she really does pray. Because that's her wilderness, so to speak. That's her place of being isolated from the world and being able to listen to the voice of God. And I want to encourage you, find a place like that. Right? Find a place like that. Fourth, when Jesus prayed, he spoke big and very bold prayers. Matthew 21. Jesus answered them, I tell you the truth, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only will you do what was done to the fig tree, that is, remember Jesus spoke and the fig tree withered. So, but even if you say to this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. But whatever you ask in prayer, if you believe, you will receive. Wow, that's huge, isn't it? What a promise. Jesus asked his father for really big things. He asked his father to heal those who were sick and to raise the dead. And he encouraged his disciples. He said, now you go out also and ask for really enormous things. Ask. Church, sometimes we do not have because we just don't ask. Let's, let's ask. I want to exhort us. Let's ask for very big things. Maybe you need a job. I prayed with a guy after the first service. He's, he lost his job and we prayed for a job. He needs a job. Or maybe you need a better job or you need a job that pays more so you can provide better for your family or so that you can share. Maybe even you, need, you want to share with the persecuted church or you want to share with those who are taking the gospel out to new places. You want to be able to give more. Maybe, maybe it's a job to sustain you and your family or maybe it's a job so you can give more. If that's your request, pray for that. Ask. Or maybe you're lonely and you would like to not be lonely. You'd love to be married and you're waiting on God. Ask him. Ask God for the the ideal spouse for you. Pray, ask for that. Or maybe you're married and you don't have children and that's the longing of your heart, the desire of your heart. Ask. Ask. We have folks every service up front who would love to pray with you. The reason they like to pray with you is because they like to pray. They volunteer for that ministry because they enjoy praying. Come up, let somebody pray with you and ask. Maybe you hear me challenging us to pray big and bold prayers and that sounds a little scary or maybe even ridiculous because you've asked before and it hasn't happened. And now you're discouraged. Uh, The bike crashed and you don't want to get back on again and try again. 
Let me tell you, I have literally, I've seen miracles in answer to prayers. I've seen an MRI with a cancerous tumor in a baby, and the church prayed, and I've seen the follow-up MRI with no tumor, no treatment, no surgery, nothing. I've seen that. I've seen miracles. I've seen people healed of cancer. I've prayed with people, and they've received jobs. I've seen marriages healed that were completely broken and moving toward divorce. I've, I've seen that in answer to prayer. You know, I've also seen times, though, when we prayed and, and the cancer wasn't healed. And there was a long period without a job, and there was a lot of suffering. I, I've seen both of those things. And, and then we're, we can become really discouraged, and we want to stop. Because we don't understand why is God not answering. It seems like this is a blanket promise, right? Whatever you ask in prayer, if you believe, you will receive. And we say, well, maybe it's just my faith. My faith's not big enough. And so that is, in a sense, that's the elephant in the room. Why doesn't God always answer yes? Why doesn't he give me what I want, when I want, right now? There are actually four reasons, biblically. Okay. Four reasons. First is this, very simple and straightforward. Sometimes our motives are wrong. James talks about this. He said, you ask and you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. There's something dark in our own hearts. And the reason that we're asking is just for ourselves. It's not for the good of others. It's not for the glory of God. But there's something greedy within us. And God is he's not a cosmic slot machine and prayer being the coin, right? That's not who he is. He is a loving heavenly father who wants to do above and beyond what we ask or even imagine That being said, he cares deeply for the condition of our hearts and what are our motives and the desires of our hearts. And so sometimes we don't receive because our motives are not right. Sometimes we don't receive because we are actually walking in sin. There's habitual sin in our life or or sin that we haven't confessed. We know it's there, but we haven't actually confessed. Psalm 66 says this, if I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. That doesn't mean that God can't hear, right? Because God is omnipresent. He is everywhere and he is omniscient. He knows all things. So it's not as if God can't hear the prayer. God is choosing not to respond to the prayer because he cares about pointing out that sin in our lives and removing that barrier in the relationship. And so sometimes what's required is confession. In 1 John chapter 3, John wrote, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. The relationship is rich and warm. And so God can respond because there's no barrier between us. As James says, the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Sometimes the issue is we just need to confess. Third, sometimes God says no or he says not yet because there's a greater glory that God is trying to accomplish either from him saying no or from us learning to wait. Okay, back to the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus uh, went a little beyond them. He fell on his face and he prayed, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Jesus is saying, Father, I don't want the cup. Right? And, the, and the cup is a metaphor for the wrath of God against sin. It's the wrath of God against sin. And Jesus is saying, I don't want to drink what's in that cup. I don't want your wrath on me. I don't want the the weight of the sin of the world on me at this moment. I don't want to experience the suffering that comes 
as a penalty of mankind's sin. I don't want to experience the separation that will, that will happen within you know, our family, father, son, and spirit. Somehow, this rupture in the Godhead. God, if you can make this cup pass from me in my humanity, Father, that's what I long for. Yet not what I choose or desire or will, but what you will. And you know what God said? God said to his son, no. God said to his son, no. Why? Because there's a greater good that could only be accomplished through the suffering and death and resurrection of his son. That is, we would not be sitting here. We would be still dead, separated from God in our sins if God had said yes to Jesus in that moment, but he didn't. He said no to his son in that moment because there was a greater glory to be accomplished. And men and women, sometimes God is doing something even, even through the, the evil that's happening against us. Sometimes he's doing something through that that is good for others, for us in our character, for the world that we simply cannot see. And in those moments, God is teaching us deeply how to trust in him. Those are the greatest tests, in a sense, really, of our faith in those moments. Romans 8.28 says this, And we know, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Now, if you have a friend who's suffering and they're praying and they're asking for something and they're not receiving, I'm not encouraging you to tape this verse to their windshield. That's not what I'm saying. But it is nevertheless true. And notice what Paul says. He says, we know that God causes all things to work together for good. He doesn't say all things are good but that God can take everything in your life, whether it is a good or an evil, whether it's a yes or no or a wait, and he can make something beautiful from that, but you may not see it exactly in the moment. But God is working always for a greater good and a greater glory, always. That's why we trust his sovereignty. A fourth, the no or the not yet can lead to greater intimacy and greater power in our lives than we've experienced before. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Verse 7. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7. Paul has just described uh, this vision he had when he was caught up into the very presence of God. It's an overwhelming vision. He heard things that he couldn't even repeat on the earth. Verse 7, he says, because of the surpassing, uh, incomparable greatness of these revelations that were given to me for this reason to to keep me from exalting myself, There was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this thorn in my flesh, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I'm well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am actually strong. Paul said, God, take the thorn from me. And God said, no. Because then, Paul, you're going to remain dependent. Then, Paul, you're going to keep coming. Then our intimacy is going to grow because you won't be trusting in your own strength. You will be trusting in my strength. And so God said, no. The fact of the matter is this. In, in the, the course of my Christian life, my prayer life has always been the deepest when I am the most needy and the most desperate. That's when I pray the best. That's when I pray the best. I wish that it were otherwise. 
But I know, as a matter of fact, that sometimes God has said no to me because he needs to keep me in that deeply dependent place because that's when we're actually our strongest, we're maybe our least comfortable because we don't enjoy this paradox. We would like to be self-sufficient and strong in ourselves, but he keeps us intentionally weak so that we reach out and find our strength just in him because that's real strength. That's real strength. And so sometimes God says no, keeping us in that dependent place so our intimacy with him remains and our dependence upon him remains. So fourth, fifth characteristic actually of Jesus' prayer life is this. When he prayed, he didn't stop. Right? He, didn't, he didn't quit. When he went to the garden, he asked and then he checked on his disciples and they're sleeping and then he went back and he asked, and he checked on them, they're sleeping. And then he went back and he asked, and he asked, and he asked, and he asked. When Paul experienced that thorn in the flesh, he, he just asked again and again and again and again, over and over and over and over again. You know what? Jesus tells us to do the same thing. When he's instructing on prayer, he gave a parable about an unrighteous judge who wouldn't give a widow what she needed. And so what did she do? Man, she just beat his door down, right? She was just constantly there. She just bang, 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 bang. I, I have a need. Give me justice. Give me righteousness protect me. Bang, 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 bang. And Jesus says, well, you need to learn something from this. You should pray like that. Not that I'm an unjust judge or your father is in, in heaven's an unjust judge, but you should learn to pray like this woman prayed, the persistence of her prayer. She's not quitting. She's not giving up. Again, back to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7. Jesus said this, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find Knock and it will be open to you. These are all present tense imperatives. They, it should literally read like this. Ask and keep on asking and it will be given to you. Seek and keep on seeking and you will find. Knock and keep on knocking and it will be open to you. In other words, this is not a promise for an immediate answer. This is an exhortation to just keep coming after the Lord, right? Don't quit. Never give up. Keep coming. Because in the course of that, we grow in the depth of our intimacy and our love and our understanding, our trust for our Heavenly Father. So how do we apply this? A couple of thoughts as we close. The first is this. I want to exhort you again. Find your wilderness. It doesn't have to be a literal wilderness. It just has to be a place where the noise of the world isn't quite so noisy, right? Where you can intentionally go to tune that out and give God your undistracted, undivided attention. I encourage you and exhort you, take the word with you and let the word guide your prayers. Because for me, sometimes my mind can wander. And what I do to get my mind back on what I need to listen to is I take it back to the word and let the word guide my prayer. Find your wilderness. Second, start today. All right, start today. Anybody uh, have a hard time getting through the race deal to get here this morning? It was a little... A little tricky for the early service. Hopefully it was easier for you. Um, I don't know why, but they loop the Anderson campus, right, for a half marathon today, full marathon in December, which we're going to actually, you know, heads up, we're going to cancel the morning services and just worship at night because we tried before and they just killed us, right? They just killed us because people around here love to run long distances. Now, you may be that person and you say, I'm going to run that. I want to tell you, if you've never run before, don't sign up first for a marathon, (laughs) right? Just a little piece of wisdom, Start by walking and then run a quarter mile and then run a half mile and then, and then build up, right? Because you can't go from zero to marathon. You will fail <laughs> or you will kill yourself in the process. It doesn't work that way. Sometimes prayer is like that. 
We're exhorted, we're encouraged. Hopefully we're not walking out of here with a sense of guilt, but a sense of excitement, enthusiasm. Okay, let me make progress. Well then, all I'm saying is this morning, let's make progress. You're probably not gonna start with an entire night of prayer. If that happens, you probably will just fall asleep and then you'll feel greater guilt in the morning. Don't, don't start with a night of prayer. Start with a few minutes and build consistency, right? Find your wilderness and go to your wilderness daily. How long? Start five minutes, start 10 minutes. Just get started. Just build that uh, spiritual muscle, that relational skill by beginning today. And then third, make your requests big, bold, specific. Okay? God is greater. God wants to give you exceeding abundantly beyond all you can ask or, as Ephesians says, even imagine. So start imagining. You know, if, the, if it is that job or healing in your body or relationship or healing in a relationship, a, a marriage that needs to be healed, what, whatever that really big thing is, salvation of a friend or greater impact in your life for the nations, whatever that really big, bold thing is, I want to exhort you, encourage you, just start asking. Just start asking. God wants to give us and can give us more even than we can imagine. He's waiting for us to ask. And he might not say yes immediately, but in that process, he teaches us how to depend upon him. He, he humbles us and he teaches us how to love him and trust him and have great intimacy with him. So as we close, what I want us to do is just take a few minutes this morning and we're going to start, right? Just a few minutes. And I want you to think about just one thing maybe that God has placed upon your heart that might even seem impossible, but you want to ask God for that today. Okay, let's take a few moments silently and prayer before the Father and then I will close us in just a few minutes. Father, we confess that there are things on our hearts that are so important to us and they're so deeply held that we're almost afraid to ask, afraid to be disappointed. I pray that you'd stretch our faith even this morning. We pray with the disciples, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to love being with you and and to be truthful and honest. To let our prayer with you just be conversation that's deeply intensely personal. Father, teach us to pray. Teach us, Father, to reach out in faith and, and pray prayers that are they're big and they're bold and they're courageous and they're specific so we can see you answer. Father, make us men and women of prayer that others are with us in prayer. They hear our intimacy with you and, and they say to us, oh, teach me to pray. Would you teach me to pray? Father, I pray that you would increase the strength of this church through our humility and our dependence upon you. And I pray, Father, as a result, you would do just beautiful and wonderful things in our lives and through our lives for this community and for the world. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let me remind you again, there are folks up front, we'd love to pray with you and for you. Uh, but I encourage you this week, right, take some specific steps just to grow in prayer. God bless you. Have a great week.